Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Welcome back to the Growth Island podcast. My name is Mess Freeze, and I'm your host as usual. This is an interview that I have wanted to get for three years. I started following this guy more than three years ago when I saw he was a researcher and uh, he was doing proper science on how can you optimize your sleep. And he had created this weird but cool app that could get you to sleep deeper or have better deep sleep. And since then, I've been following his work on LinkedIn whenever he's been sharing articles and so on. The guy that I got on is uh, Dr. Daniel Gardenberg. He's a sleep scientist. He has a PhD in psychology and he's the CEO of Sleep Space, which uh, used to be called something else, was the one that I was following when uh, testing out, but we'll get into that as well. He's also an adjunct professor at Penn State University. For those that are not from the States, that's one of the best universities that you can be at. So like you don't just become affiliated with that. That's pretty big as well. He has several patterns, peer-reviewed articles. I continue uh, TEDx or TED Talk that has more than 4 million views. Like, and he's been appearing on so many of the big publications. There's a reason why I've been following Daniel for so many years. So Daniel, thank you so much for finding time for coming on the show. Oh my gosh, you're making me blush over here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here. So Daniel... Just briefly for the ones that like, if anyone is still doubting, why is sleep important? Yeah. Most of the people listening to this show, I'm probably, I don't have to convince how important sleep is. What got me interested in it in grad school, I took a graduate level in undergrad. I took a grad level course on the neurobiology of sleep. And basically every organism sleeps for a reason. And it impacts every chronic health outcome. Personally, I'm also very interested in how it impacts mood and productivity. Obviously, $400 billion in accidents in the United States are attributed to poor sleep quality. But it's also related to bodybuilders being you know, more effective in building muscle. Athletes now are using it all the time. I think the NBA now has bought aura rings for all of their players, for example. So there's a reason why the athletes in the NBA are taking it seriously. There's huge performance gains to optimizing your sleep. And when I think about it, it's not just sleep. It's more like energy levels, so circadian rhythms. And wake has a lot to do with sleep, too. But to scare you, cancer, hypertension, really strong links, diabetes, cardiometabolic disease, any of those diseases, very strong causal links, multi types of studies showing. What my focus on recently is actually the connection between sleep and Alzheimer's disease. So if we want to think about mental performance... The biggest cost to the U.S. healthcare system in the next 10 years is actually going to be Alzheimer's and related dementias as baby boomers age out, essentially. And in about five years ago, there was some really convincing evidence that deep sleep in particular helps clear out this basically cardiometabolic waste that gets formed through 
processing the world throughout the day. You have some natural waste in your brain that gets formed. And beta amyloid plaques, which are linked to getting Alzheimer's disease, can accumulate when we don't get the deep sleep that basically cleanses out these chemicals that get formed in your brain. Yeah. So that was hopefully the last listeners that need to be convinced that sleep is important. I think I get it. Not I think. I know I get a ton of questions about sleep because it's something I've been noting a lot. Everything from like dark rooms. And I found that on your blog as well. Make sure that you sleep in a dark environment. Is this something you've seen studies confirming or is that like an urban legend? No, that's definitely true. One of our co collaborators at Penn State has done some of the first research on how blue light impacts your sleep quality. And we weren't, met, we weren't exposed to blue lights for all of existence, basically, as long as humans have been around. Only in the 18 or really in the 1900s was electricity everywhere. So that's not typical for our biology. And we have receptors in our eyes that are sensitive to light, even when our eyes are closed. Your photoreceptors in your eyes know when there's light, even when your eyes are closed. And that sends a signal to your brain that has to do with melatonin and this circadian rhythm. And so there's actually these photoreceptors can different. The interesting thing is can, they can differentiate the types of light. So for whatever reason, maybe it's because of the red hue of a sunset or the red hue of fires that we probably sat around when we were cavemen. Red light does less of this sort of activation of the brain than blue. So, you know, me and my fiance, we have a whole wind down process. And that's a big thing that we talk about when we think about optimizing sleep. Where our lights essentially turn, we were doing red for a while, but it was a little bit too much like red light. There's like weird connotations with red. It's just so we actually do a little pink hue that's pretty close to a red and that sort of sets in usually we'll do it hour to a half an hour before we go to bed and what kind of uh, light bulbs do you use because i heard about the philips hue i heard good things and bad things i ordered something from uh, some nasa technology and it's i think it was michael something one of the other sleep experts that's uh, speaking a lot of many shows Michael Bruce, yeah. Yeah, that he was referring to. What would you recommend? We think of ourselves as the sleep operating system. So we don't have like strong opinions on what lights you use necessarily. I think a lot of them can do the trick. We work closely with a company called LifeX. And their solution definitely works. Philips Hue definitely works. The main thing for, for my what I need, feel like I need, <laughs> don't need, want, <laughs> is I need Wi-Fi wi connection so I can say like, hey, G, turn off all my lights. So it's all voice activated and stuff like this. Philips can do that. LifeX can do that. It's kind of nice if you're in bed to have that gesture for turning off the lights. You just say it instead of having to get off, get up and turn off the lights. 
And we have some technology that sort of integrates into this wind down process that we're trying to validate in a clinical trial. So short answer to your question is if it can change color and connect to your Wi-Fi and do voice control stuff, which is like LifeX and Philips, then I think you're good. Other companies, I think, I don't know them all, but I'm sure other companies can do that stuff now too. Yeah. So Daniel, you've done a lot of research. You got a pretty big grant as well. I think it was $3 million as well to look more into sleep. Tell me a little bit more about that and like what you've discovered in regards to improving sleep. Yeah, so it's a long journey. There's something in the States called Small Business Investment Research Grants. And basically, if you're a company that is doing something to help the public good, you can actually get the National Institute of Health to fund your company. As part of this, we have to do some pretty serious and intense research and make it publicly available to everybody. So we teamed up with, I know a lot about sleep, but I also have a mentor at Penn State who reads every journal and I'll ask him any question. He's the editor of some of the, of the journal Sleep, Orfeo Buxton. And so I'll, I'll always field any questions that I'm uncertain about to him. And together with him and another professor at the University of Arizona, actually, who specializes in behavioral sleep medicine, we're able to bring people into this lab at Penn State, connect them to all the best wearables. And you'll see, I geared up myself a little bit for, yeah. for you here. And then connect someone to polysomnography, which is these electrode montage. Here's the thing about sleep. Uh, it's defined by these brainwaves. So while these devices can get pretty close to predicting what your brain is doing, a sensor that's reading the wave, you can't beat it really. It's just getting a signal that heart rate can't totally get. And this is speaking from someone who makes these algorithms. And we compared or clinical grade device called the Spectrum Pro, Apple Watch, and some other devices, and then had people wear EEG in a lab four days, continuously monitored, controlling their light exposure, all this stuff. This is what we would call a well-controlled study. Sorry? So we, for this, we have to pay people like, I forget, like $600 to even do this. We had, I think, a total of 30 in the course of this whole research project go through this. And so we, had, we published a paper in the journal Sleep comparing all these devices. And we were talking a little bit before I hopped on. We started the podcast. These devices, and we built our own Apple Watch algorithm that I think is like the most accurate. And we have some evidence that it is. And so the thing that you got to understand when you're interpreting this data, if, you're, if you've ever used a Fitbit or any one of these devices, is it's really Fitbit good at... Met- yeah, you have? So both Fitbit, several Garmin, Aura Ring, and so on. Uh- right. So you know the, the drill here. And so they're pretty... They're good at measuring sleep weight. But when it comes to the sleep stages... I usually interpret the data as relative truth because they can be pretty off in the absolute value that they're saying. So I would compare my ordering data from night to night within myself, 
but I don't necessarily believe that I actually got 20 minutes of deep sleep because I know that I've been to, I, I've done all this stuff on myself. I've seen my brain on an EEG on, throughout the night on polysomnography. I know that I basically have a healthy sleep architecture and I usually get like an hour to an hour and a half of deep sleep and at least an hour and a half of REM which is, would be considered healthy for someone my age. I think in the future, and I think in the next couple of years, there's going to be an upper threshold and basically all the devices will be, have a gold standard algorithm. And I think it's going to be ours because we have more data than anyone else and we're going to just make it publicly available. But we'll see. I think in the next couple of years, there'll be an upper threshold and hopefully doctors will start embracing some of these technologies Oftentimes now, I don't know if you've heard the term orthosomnia, but the doctors are very reluctant to interpret the data from these devices for a couple of reasons. Yeah, but I guess, in, so I also looked into the dream, which is EEG measurement on your head and Muse, I think is also doing something similar. Uh, yeah, you have I, was, I, I have a dream over here that I could grab a few. But yeah, so I've tried the dream gen two. I'm excited to, I'm trying to work with the Muse guys. I, I think their new device looks more comfortable. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, and this is the hard part about building tech for sleep, is that tech is so often not helpful and part of the problem. The addiction to the phones is really part, also part of the problem here. So... For me personally, wearing something on my head while I sleep, it's good for maybe you do it a couple nights and you identify if there's something structurally wrong with your sleep. And there could be it, this device can definitely give you indicators for that. But to wear something on my head for months, for example, is sort of a non-starter for me. I'm curious what your feelings were if you tried the Muse or, you know. I only used the Muse for meditation. And then I started looking more into the research and talked to several experts within neurofeedback that basically said the idea behind the Muse was really good. But the sensors were just not good enough yet. The dry sensors uh, were simply not too accurate or not accurate enough that it was mostly muscle tension. But yeah. probably, so basically it was useless what you were sitting and doing. I was so excited. Yeah. When, I I mean, when I was in grad school, this was a while. I think it's better. What, how long ago was that? Yeah, that's a year. Okay. Ago. So when I was in grad school, there was another company, NeuroSky. They had a, like a video game that you played and you could get Jimmy Neutron to like jump over things with your brainwaves. And I tried to do, I did a small study just and just having people concentrate or not and basically found that it was all muscle tension was my conclusion but uh, theoretically i think it could work that's what all the experts said so yeah. basically i talked to several experts in your feedback and they said that um there was another device that had like you needed more than just measuring here you needed to measure different parts of the brain to probably see it I don't remember what the name was. There's a bunch of them, yeah. They had a horrible website. So it was more like, but you see like those research-based people that didn't know how to go to market, right? 
but one of the scientists and experts that was also, yeah, I'm actually not allowed to disclose his name, but uh, he knew a bunch about the stuff. And he said like three to five years, then the dry sensors are going to be just as good or good enough uh, that you don't need wet sensors. So then it will work for neurofeedback and really understand the brain. I don't know about in regards to sleep, um, how accurate it, again it needs to measure compared to doing neurofeedback training. But I've been super curious to try the new Muse as it looks more comfortable and I would love to try the dream. Uh, but I haven't seen, I haven't looked at their like papers or like where they tested it up against um, the gold I mean, They're definitely accurate. We compare dream to polysomnography yeah. um, as a leg of our study and it's going to accurately measure your sleep for In sure. Stages or just like when you fall asleep and wake up? Uh, your stages. It'll measure your stages. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, okay. Um, I gotta get a hold of them. I would love <laughs> to see. I would, I've been trying to find, but then COVID came. Uh, I wanted to go to a sleep lab in Denmark, bring a bunch of the devices, and then actually just see what works. Because I was using the Aura in the start, and it was also telling me that I had like five minutes of deep sleep and stuff like that. So basically, it shouldn't function. And this, yeah, was- that's the problem with Aura for sure. So just to sum it up real quick, is one of the problems with these algorithms is that they're made for a certain population, yet people's sleep can be really variable between different populations. And so probably there needs to be like 20 algorithms, but all these companies only have like one algorithm is part of the problem. I remember I talked to Chuck Hassett, who was back then part of the sales, like he had a sales function in or, and he was like, like mess, this device is amazing. It can do like heart rate variability, temperature, and all that stuff is amazing. But sleep stages is totally off. Both him and the sleep scientist didn't want to have it, but he's like, everyone has it. He even said that on the podcast. I was like, wow, the person selling this is saying like, this should be off, right? But a guy of high integrity. But that is still amazing for measuring other stuff. We just need to know what we can actually measure. So we don't make people sick or get people sick because they're like, oh, five minutes of deep sleep. (gasps) That's why the doctors hate. So that's the term orthosomnia, which is basically people don't know how to contextualize the data and it's impossible to know how accurate the thing actually is from a concern. I know because I've studied it my whole life. I've yeah. dedicated my life to it. But if you're a little bit anxious and you're aura ring and you have maybe problems falling asleep, staying asleep, you have insomnia, for example, and your, aura, and your device is saying that you got five minutes deep sleep, it's not helping your anxiety. And so all these, so many times I have to walk people off a ledge when it comes to them being all wrapped up around interpreting some of their data from these devices. So yeah. I understand why it can be frustrating to healthcare professionals. Yeah. But it is the future. Once we get them better and they can become more accurate, right? Then it's something that we have to look at to discuss so we can actually improve. So for me, it's not just about accuracy. It's about, as a doctor, it's about openness too. And the issue is, as a researcher or a clinician, you need to know the margin of error for the devices. And so you, you need to basically know the algorithm. The, the algorithm needs to be publicly available and you need to be able to push any data from it and get any data back in a predictable way. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're building. But tell me a bit more because, so when I first found you, I found the Sonic Sleep 
and it was saying this weird sound. So it's supposed to enhance your deep sleep. I got a few friends to try it out as well. Uh, oh, wow. Tell me more about like, what is that? And um, like, you actually have papers on like why this actually makes sense and why this is working, which is one of the reasons why I've been following your work because I love when people actually do the research and try yeah. it. So basically I'm a mad scientist here trying to figure out how to enhance people's sleep. Thank you for following it from the beginning. Oh my God. So we're sleep space now. I was inspired by the idea that if we could enhance eight hours of our life in even a small way, that would be amazing. And there was a finding published by these researchers in Germany at one point was the original study showing that you can entrain brain waves with sounds because our auditory cord, our, the place in our brain that um, detect sounds, if you pulse at the same rate as your deep sleep brain waves, which are del called delta waves, and those brain waves have a frequency of about 1.2 hertz. Sorry, it's a 0.8 to like 1.5 hertz, something like that. So what these people did in the lab you'll see the whole brain oscillate in that frequency. If you look at someone's brain waves while they're in deep sleep, it's pretty magical, actually. It's like something comes over the brain and the whole thing starts functioning very differently. It's like this pulse rate at every 0.8 seconds, basically, would be 1.2 hertz. So a little bit similar to almost a heartbeat in terms of how the pulse of it and there's some thought that heart, the heart rate can sort of entrain this state a little bit. And so basically, we'll play sounds. We'll, we had someone stay up all night, someone trained in reading brainwaves, a postdoc named Margot Gray. Mm -hmm. And she would stay up all night looking at their brainwaves and then systematically played these sounds to people. Right at the point between consciousness and unconsciousness. So she would play it, and if they started getting awakened, started getting conscious, she would stop playing it. And we had a procedure for doing this. And so we're playing it like right up until your brain registering it, but not so loud that it would wake you up. And understanding this tension between consciousness and unconsciousness is really important to unlocking the secrets of sleep. We understand the four stages in the States, the five stages in Europe. It's actually different between the um, scientific community in those countries. One says there's five, one says there's four. This probably shows that we don't understand it totally. And we but generally we understand those stages, but some researchers say there's 19 stages of sleep when you look at this transition period between wake and consciousness, there's probably something more going on there. It's very brief. It's called N1 sleep. It's sort of your lighter stage of sleep. It's like, you can think about it another way is uh, hypnagogic. When you're in this sort of dream slash conscious state, they call it hypnagogic. So riding that line between consciousness and unconsciousness with stimulation is really important to possibly enhancing sleep. 
Cut to the chase. We found that we could increase delta waves with this sound in a laboratory setting, but we actually didn't produce the improvements in cognition that we would like to see. It's one thing. Yeah. Test afterwards about how well people are performing. Oh. Yeah, so it's one thing to enhance your brain waves. It's another thing to show, I want to see that this helps me perform better the next day. We'll do this crazy cognitive battery and stuff. And this is sort of what I'm, I'm trained in understanding the brain with administering various cognitive tasks. We'll test working memory, declarative memory executive functioning, all these things. I wasn't convinced by the COGS, basically. And so this sort of brought us back to the drawing board a little bit and how to actually implement this with an Apple Watch so we could administer it in the real world. So there is some evidence for this. And then we, there is another paper, sorry if I'm rambling, showing that you can do some similar things with vibrational stimulation. So we did the audio stuff. You can actually try it out still on Sleep Space. And it only works with Apple Watch because we need that level of sensing in order to know when to play the sounds, basically. And we'll also do something when you're dreaming to try to prime lucid dreams and stuff. And there's something called targeted memory reactivation in sleep science where theoretically you can prime different cognitive states and learn information better. And then the problem with sounds though, is also in the lab, we had people wearing earbuds such that we can very precisely deliver the decibels of sounds to people. And so there's practical limitations to that. And so now we're sort of a little bit more around vibration stimulation. And we have this new software that's working with the Apple Watch and it sort of entrains the heart into a relaxing state through these subtle vibrations. And I just wrote a grant to try to, I wrote another grant recently, I'm actually still writing it, to try to validate that aspect. If we can pulsate your wrist basically slightly below your heart rate, there's some evidence from another lab that can increase your, de- your delta sleep. So I'm trying to figure it out, but it's not 100% there yet. Fascinating. Uh, do you know the Palo, which is also vibrations like... Oh, the Pebble, yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's a couple of the vibration ones. Yeah. Some of them are more sleep, yeah. It's more for, uh, for focus uh, or calming down and different things, but it's also like figuring out that different vibrations can have an effect on our nervous system and different have different effects? Yeah, so currently we have this in sleep space, if anyone has an Apple Watch. Basically, while you're winding down, we'll vibrate the watch at slightly lower of a pulse rate as your heart rate. So it's a form of biofeedback, essentially. Um, there's other devices that do it. There's like t- another one is Touchpoint, I think, that some of them do bilateral stimulation for like a binaural kind of effect i think it could work yeah i i look forward to seeing when uh, when it comes out when you look further into it so you have the app and you also have coaching where people can talk with you or some of your team about getting better sleep 
what are what are some of the top tips for people to get better sleep yeah the main thing when i think about sleep is you have to understand the type of sleeper that you are first and foremost and that's the tricky part in sleep science because the suggestions that i would give to a biohacker if someone that's trying to optimize are almost the opposite things that i would suggest to someone who is an insomniac so a lot of the things in that we would try to do is try to give you what's called like metacognition for the type of sleeper you are. So if you're insomniac, you should never nap essentially. If anything, sometimes insomniacs, they react to not being able to sleep by extending the amount of time that they're in because they're thinking, Oh my God, if I need to be in bed for this long in order to get this amount of sleep, because I'm only sleeping 60% of the time. The problem with that is it's actually counter to what you should do. You should actually consolidate the time in bed, build up your homeostatic need for sleep and start associating your bed for sleep and sex only. That's the standard thing that you say. And so you actually want, if anything, we want to push the bedtime back usually or sometimes push the wake time for earlier. Try to stay in, if you're, if you need, most people need, and this is a big, knowing how much sleep you need is also really important. About 95 to 99% of people need between seven to nine hours of sleep, which is a little bit of a range. And healthy sleep, just knowing what healthy sleep is also a really important thing, is usually spending 85 to 95% of the time in bed asleep. So I'm just going to walk through how I think about myself because that's a good example. So like personally, I can speak for myself. So like personally, I know that I need around eight hours of sleep a night. So I'll allocate actually eight and a half to nine hours of time to get that amount of sleep. I also know that if I'm a little bit healthier or unhealthier, I can get by on more than or less. So for example, if I drink or smoke weed, I know I need a little more sleep personally. And so I will get that extra sleep. Obviously, if you're recovering from like an illness or something, you need sleep. So it's pretty stable from that within an individual, your sleep need. But I'm also articulating there's other variables that I'm thinking about that will dictate how much sleep I think I should be getting. That makes a lot of sense. And I always love when I have experts in on the same topics that are saying the same thing. So I had Dr. Michael Topkins, who's also a psychologist and associated with Berkeley. And he was very much in the school as well, saying like, if you have insomnia and so on, uh, you need to build up your sleep appetite, then naps are not good. Naps are good if you sleep properly. And if you have insomnia, you want to be careful with tracking too much because the psychological effect. Exactly. And it's even more important, actually, that you potentially just write it down and then you keep the bedroom only for sex and sleep. And if you are not tired and you don't have that sleep appetite, as he told, then you shouldn't be in bed. You need to get up. You need to exactly. build up that sleep appetite. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so for the next version of the software we're building, it'll identify if you are an insomniac automatically and literally change the interface such that only certain types of data are, ex you're, are exposed to you. And yeah, as he said, if you can't sleep for like 15 minutes or more, the token advice is to get up and do something 
in a dimly lit, I do a pink room. Yeah. Or there's other things you can do too. So what if you are a biohacker, another nerd that's like, okay, yeah. I want to get maximum out. Just like when I'm looking at your PhD, you're looking at like, how do you get the best performance, right? Someone thinking, what can I do, Daniel? I want to be top of my game, raising out. So that's the other main group of folks that come to us with the sleep coaching are like the optimizers, the executives, the athletes. And for those folks, taking a 20-minute power nap during your circadian dip, for example, and in training your and anyone can benefit from entraining their circadian rhythm. And that just has to do with the timing of lights, meals, exercise. The more regular these things are, the more effective you are. If you're an athlete and there's a performance time that you're trying to optimize for, there's also a way to structure your sleeping such that you will perform optimally at that specific time. And for an athlete, it can be tricky with all the time zone stuff. So you have to sort of take a very personalized talk to the person and, and try to really figure it out. A big picture here, I don't think that technology is going to solve this problem by itself. It really, in my mind, requires coaches, caregiver providers, care providers using the technology to enhance their treatments. And so that's what we're trying to do is thinking about coaches and clinicians almost as creators for using the, the, some of the sleep technology and deve developing these customized plans for each person that can actually adapt based on different data inputs that are coming in. A couple quick hacks is like, I have a happy lamp, for example, that's right next to me right now to make sure that I get like the sunlight that I need every day at a certain time. Is it try to get blue yeah. light? So this is actually just a 10,000 lux white light, I guess I would call it. That's used a lot in Scandinavia. I had a colleague, um, so we we're building health ventures, and he, so we were very open, and he had that. I know many people use that also in the wintertime to not get depressed or have exactly. heavy mood swings. It's a seasonal affective disorder lamp, essentially. But, you know... Basically, the eyes respond to the 10,000 lux, and so that helps entrench the rhythm. The best thing to do for me would be to like walk outside and go for a walk, but yeah. I know myself, and sometimes I'll do that, and sometimes I won't. So this is sometimes it's raining out. So this is a way to make sure that I always get it, essentially. Something that happens a lot that I've seen with the intermittent fasters, which is a common thing for biohackers, I'm is... On you are? Yeah. <laughs> well, so sometimes there's an issue where that I've seen a couple times where if you're intermittent fasting, you're restricting your calories to a certain um, time during the day. And you can either usually do that in the morning or the evening, right? But if you're not eating in the morning, and you are, say, a morning lark, and you're someone that wakes up in the morning and does their stuff in the morning, and you're sort of sending, from a circadian perspective, from your 24-hour rhythm perspective, you're sort of sending a bad signal. So if you're an evening person, you should probably fast in the morning and then consume the calories in the evening. 
just so it's aligned. Yeah. Um, a couple of times, I'm sure maybe you're probably doing it the right way, but so- sometimes people will misalign themselves essentially. Yeah. Um, I think it's super fascinating when you're saying that, because I also heard that many people that wake up during the night and have to go pee is not necessarily because they like have to pee that much, but it's because their brain is lacking glucose. So that's like a signal to wake up, to go look for something and then they go pee. Of course, if you drink a bunch of water, it's very natural that you wake up. That's the other hard part about intermittent fasting is the, and look, I've done it before and I think it can be an effective way to lose weight. And there's definitely a way to do it that is healthy. And obviously there's some good science out there showing that fasting is a way to increase longevity. So I'm not bashing intermittent fasting. I'm just saying that there's a way to do it properly. And for me personally, sometimes what would happen is I would do it and I would wake up in the middle of the night, be really hungry and eat, which is the bad side of intermittent fasting, right? You don't want to be doing that. And so that's sort of what you're talking about. The other thing for me personally is I'll do it And then I will overload my system with a too big of a meal, essentially. So that's another issue. So a lot of it is having better willpower than me, basically. (laughs) Knowing where you're at with it. So for me, intermittent fasting was very hard in the start. I was using this app called Zero and I felt like, oh, so this year, like I had to wait to eat because I've always had breakfast. And then after a while, now I do it like flexibly. If I feel like I have to get some food, I eat. And otherwise I fast, but I'm following a course with Mark Sisson, who's very much into intermittent fasting and so on. I read some books where they say it takes up to three weeks of adjusting your system to it. And then you got to make sure that you're in that window, get enough of the right food. Um, because otherwise it's not a good practice. But uh, longevity-wise, exactly. uh, right. this is Do with caution, but yeah. it can be good. Yeah. yeah. But it's like everything, like becoming, like, without going into the big discussion about a vegetarian or not, right? But being a vegan is not the same as eating healthy. Like you can eat mm-hmm. potato fries and a bunch of crap, right? So everything has to be done in like kind of understanding the way of doing it. Exactly. It's always like, this is the hard part. And I love how you're conveying this message in your podcast, but the media oftentimes isn't good at nuance. It's like this thing, it's either good or bad. It's, it's never like intermittent fasting. It's always intermittent fasting, the new way to lose weight. It's more like intermittent fasting. It can be great for some people. It's not a great headline, but that's the reality of the situation. And now we know for women uh, that they should probably not be fasting as much as men. And then most of the research, like much medical research is mostly done on men. So women doing extended fasting uh, can actually mess up the hormones. So they should probably do 12 to 14 hours on normal basis. And then sometimes longer, they can definitely do longer fasts. But like everything is a bit more nuanced, which is why I'd often get experts yeah. like you on the show and ask those questions to be like, okay. But that would actually be another question. I know time is running, Daniel. I've been saving up with questions for a few years, but what's one of the misunderstood things in the health space when it comes to sleep that you wish more people knew about? Yeah, there's a couple of big misconceptions out there. One of the big ones that some Americans have is that, and I'm sure most of your listeners don't have this, but they use al- they think alcohol helps with their sleep sometimes, which is a really big problem. Really, sleep need I think is really misunderstood by a lot of people. I think a lot of people 
think that they can get by on a lot less than they actually do need. And like 40% of Americans are sleep deprived. Partly it's because we work ourselves too hard, obviously, and stuff like that. But I think there's also just like a misconception around how much is needed. So like, for example, my um, fiance is like a daughter of an immigrant and stuff. And he sort of programmed it into her head since she was a kid that she only needed like six and a half hours of sleep, basically. And I basically, I sort of finally convinced her to sleep like how I sleep more. And she's like, oh my God, I didn't know I could get that extra cycle in. And I feel so much better during the day. It's like night and day. Sometimes a good analogy I have is a fish who's in water doesn't know that anything besides water. They've only known water their whole lives. When you take the fish out of the water into the fresh air, it's like, oh my God, a breath of fresh air. I never knew that life could be this way. Another big misconception is, now thinking about life being this way, is the folks that suffer from problems with their breathing while they sleep. There's a lot of, one of the interesting things about sleep is there's a place for the psychologist, there's a place for the pulmonologist, and there's also a place for the dentist. And everyone thinks you have to wear this big mask, and it's recommended to wear the mask, especially for sleep apnea folks. It'll, take, it'll save you like five years, basically, especially if you're off your life, especially if you're severe apnea. But the dentist for non-severe, if you have a mild case, can give you a mouth plate that actually reorients your bottom jaw and has efficacy in helping the issue. So you don't necessarily have to wear the Darth Vader mask, though the Darth Vader mask, they've made a lot of headway in the comfort for that device too. Yeah. That's good to know. <laughs> so quickly looping back to different devices. So it's possible to use your app to detect sleep and you're getting it validated up against sleep labs and so on in regards to accuracy and so on. So that's a top one. You said Dream as well can actually measure EEG properly. So would you use a Dream together with your app? Or you could. If you want, so the way I think about it more is if you think there's something like physiologically wrong with your sleep, like you're not, you really think you're not getting deep sleep. You're sleeping eight to nine hours a night. You're still tired during the day. There might be something with your thyroid possibly that's causing this, but there might be also, you might have a sleep disorder possibly. And you obviously see your doctor, but using something like the dream is a tool for being able to basically track that. So that's how I would use it. And you're like, I want to like improve every little part. Like if I spend one third of my day sleeping, then why am I spending so little time on optimizing that part? And it's so my logic being reluctance like, for that. It's a, the problem with that is like, the, so that's like the, I look, I fall into that category too. Some of the problems with that is if you're overly trying to sleep is about like letting go and surrendering hmm. the harder everyone can relate to the harder you try to sleep. The more you try to sleep, the harder it is to fall asleep. It's not like working out where you, you, you can be a type A person, push ahead and you'll have better results. If you are approaching sleep in that way, it'll do more harm than good. 
So I think there is something to like overly optimizing, doing more harm than good. That being said, I think you definitely can go down one of these trains, at least for a period of time and learn a lot of amazing things. Like maybe that magnesium helps you have better sleep or something like that, which there's some evidence for. Um, how, mag mag how much magnesium? I had Dr. Oli, I can't pronounce his name, from Finland, from the Nordic Biohacker Program. And uh, he changed my amount of magnesium. So I'm taking two pills a day. But I don't remember. He had some ratio regarding to weight. Do you know that ratio of how? I, I'm not like a phys I'm not a, a chem I don't know the chemistry as well. For, I know for melatonin, at least, if you're a healthy sleeper, you really don't want to take much more than like three milligrams even, the science has shown. I can't remember the milligram dose. Usually they give way too many for melatonin and you can get groggy the next day. I, I can't remember off the top of my head our suggestion for magnesium. Just another hack that we found in our lab, just to go back to sound. So we think about sound, light, and temperature as ways to enhance sleep is simply blocking out sound with a noise mask. With a, when we use pink noise, that's something that has also been found to be effective. And I've seen people's brains waking up. You wouldn't realize, this is another misconception, your brain wakes up throughout the night all the time without you recognizing it. And that's not necessarily unhealthy. And even in air conditioning turning on, I've seen people's brains waking up to that. And if you have a sound mask, even like a fan, we use dynamic pink noise in our software. It'll round out disruptive noises like a snore such that you're less likely to wake up. And that's a simple win. That's a quick so win. A sound mask is basically just a headset. Or is It's it like uh, pink noise or white noise playing from your phone. And so I'll do this wind down where I'll do ocean waves for 10 minutes, and then it'll automatically go into pink noise, which is like a similar thing to white noise. And then gradually wake up with 528 hertz. That's my wake up routine, FYI. Got it. <laughs> Fantastic, Daniel. I promise not to take too much of your time. Uh, rounding off like your top one, two, three advice on how to live a happy, healthy, and meaningful life. It can be related to sleep, something you already said, or it might be like, don't worry too much about sleep. Yeah. Honestly, this is going to sound like I'm dodging the question a little bit, but I think about it more. The most important thing is knowing yourself. So having that metacognition, And that's been shown in psychology to be related to outcomes for almost every, I'm not saying it's relevant to mental health, but, you know, it's relevant and also just anyone's performance. But there's one to three things that you could do to not, that could improve your sleep quality, whether it's having a different set of blankets as your sleep partner, getting the pet to not be in the bed. It's unique to, to each individual. And so I would encourage each person to just think about themselves, their sleep habits, their wind down procedures, their morning rituals, and what, how they could introduce things into their lives, simple changes that can have a big effect on their sleep. And obviously, if you sleep well, you're going to be a happier, healthier person. For sure.
I love that so many experts, despite where they're coming from, is almost like get to know yourself, take it easy. Uh, don't you know, overstress about things. Be curious about it. Like learn new things. That's a common thing, no matter what profession or industry people are coming from. So there, there must be a lot of truth to that. I think so. Beautiful. Daniel, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, just check out sleepspace.com. We're rolling out some amazing software soon. That's gonna we're calling it the sleep operating system of the future mm -hmm. so we're going to integrate with all the various wearables out there and then show coaches and doctors this data in a way that actually helps them with, with their treatments cool and what about instagram linkedin other places oh you can see me on instagram follow me on dr period snooze dot, is that is the instagram handle the snoozing and, before is that good or bad Generally, they say that you shouldn't snooze. We, I, th I think the best way to wake up, honestly, is without an alarm clock. Because that means that you're getting... Generally, if you can sleep more, you should. There's a couple exceptions to that. Sometimes if you're depressed, maybe you shouldn't sleep more. But generally, the right way to wake up is with a gradual alarm and to not snooze. We have a functionality where you can shake the phone to snooze it so you get back into sleep faster at least. Yeah. Speaking of which, my backup alarm just went off. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Daniel, I'll make sure to uh, link to all of uh, the different places where I can find you as well and that you just mentioned as well so people can follow your work. Thank you. Appreciate your time. So, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.